Ready to build better benefits that maximize employee wellness? Join Infirmary Health and Rx Benefits June 4th ASHRA webinar as they discuss actionable advice for developing pharmacy programs with your pharmacy resources, how to build internal and external partnerships that boost employee wellness, and what pharmacy trends could impact future benefit design for all HR leaders. Register today. To learn more about Rx Benefits, visit employers.rxbenefits.com or click the link in show notes. Ashra Nation, welcome to this episode of the Ashra Podcast. We are very excited to, to bring this episode to you. We have an amazing legal mind uh, on the podcast with us today from Kelly Dry and Warren. And it just happens to be that Kelly Dry and Warren LLP was our very first sponsor for the Asher podcast. So our, our level of gratitude to our guest, to the PR and marketing team at Kelly Dry and Warren uh, is just, it's just off the charts. We are so grateful for this company uh, and supporting the show. With us today, we have Barbara Hoey. She's been practicing labor and employment law on the management side for over 20 years. She is involved in big cases, uh, labor relations, you name it. Uh, I could not do her justice in a full-on introduction, so I think that we have to let Barbara do that, Luke. So, Barbara, welcome to the Astro Podcast. Welcome, and thank you for having me. For sure. Uh, can you just start us off and, and just Give our listeners your your 90-second elevator pitch. Who is Barbara Hoey? Well, I've been representing um, employers, as you said, for for several decades. Um, I do everything from uh, counseling clients through difficult situations, walking them through hard terminations, um, investigations, conducting investigations, um, and then also training uh, managers, but a lot of our time, sadly, is spent defending lawsuits. So it's trying to avoid the lawsuits, but then defending the lawsuits when they happen. So I think the best way to describe it is I know where you can get in trouble. And <laughs> if a client like us early on, which a lot of our clients uh, do, we can sometimes um, fend off a lawsuit, or at least we can uh, help them navigate a situation. So if the employee does sue, they are set up to uh, successfully defend it. Um, and that's what we do. Keeps us Very pretty nice. busy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Luke, I've, 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 I've said it numerous times and any HR professionals I get an opportunity to talk to when you're talking about building relationships inside your organization, I, I use a rule of three. And there are, I think there are three key relationships. And that's why I'm so excited for this episode. And number one is legal. So your internal general counsel, if you have one, and of course, your outside counsel, um, like Barbara, who's going in and working with employers, I think that's a that's your probably your most critical relationship to make sure that you build. And then the CFO, and then the marketing team, your marketing, your chief marketing officer. I think those are three critical. Number one being legal. So Barbara, I think this is going to be a great great episode, and it's going to deliver huge value to everybody listening, all of our healthcare HR professionals. So Luke, where should we start? I want to know, Barbara, if we can jump right in, tell me a little bit more about the role you play in augmenting health systems legal strategy uh, and what types of issues you 
typically see or, or help out with? Uh, sure. Look, I, I, we help out with, and it depends on the size. So we represent some, I, I'd say smaller size hospitals under five. And if you have size, you're going to have a small legal team, maybe one to three lawyers, and you're going to have a relatively small HR department. So for those clients, we really function as their employment. Um, and the HR department or the general counsel will call us about virtually any challenging uh termination investigation uh, situation they have. So that's what I would call the small hospital system. So that can be everything. The larger systems, and we do represent some large systems, have uh, really good, competent in-house legal teams that do labor employment law. So there, we're getting calls when there's a, um, a really tricky situation. You know, they recognize that they're trying to design a new uh, compensation system, um, and they want to make sure that this bonus complies with all the various laws. They want a final review of their uh, a disability leave policy that they're changing. And, you know, there are multiple laws um, that layer on one over the other about disability leaves. Or they want us to review a, a difficult termination, um, someone where they know this person has already sort of, quote, lawyered up or is going to lawyer and um, so there is kind of the more nuanced or really kind of difficult situations. Um, but it can be everything from, you know, the, uh, the, the doctor who's being fired because he falsified um, a record to a nurse being terminated because she was caught in a room uh, hitting a patient. I've seen mm. everything. I've seen everything. Um, <laughs> We also handle in the in the hospitals that are unionized, in which in New York a lot of the hospitals are unionized. It's one of the um, industries in this in this city that is really kind of a bastion of unionization. Civil Eleven Ninety Nine and New York State Nurses Association. We handle the um, bargaining negotiations. Um, we also handle the union grievances, again advising them, and then arbitrations when the cases go to arbitration. So it's it's a lot. Barbara, you're seeing uh, a lot of nurses unionize a lot more because I got to be honest with you. When I look at the healthcare news every day, it seems like half of the articles around the country have to deal with uh, with that topic. What are you seeing right now? Is it has it always been that way? Is it is it increasing? Well, I've been I've been practicing since um, the late '80s, and the, the unions have always been a presence in New York. 1199 is a, a just a massive presence um, in our in our hospitals. I think virtually every most every hospital except for a, a real handful in the metropolitan area are unionized. Um, and then whether they represent the registered nurses is um, a nuance. So in some hospitals, 1199 represents what I what I would call a service unit, which is everyone from you know your dietary, your laundry workers your service workers. And then they also have this separate division that handles the registered nurses. So in some hospitals, it's all of um, the staff, 1199. In other hospitals, the um, 1199 will represent the service unit and you'll have a union called the New York State Nurses Association, NISNA, representing the registered nurses. Um, so here, 
we're not seeing so much organization as we are seeing active activism. Nisness staged a several-day strike at several hospitals in early January, which was all over the news, um, over the issue of staffing, um, and uh, put a lot of pressure on all the hospitals in late December to come to contracts where they guaranteed certain staffing numbers. Um, and uh, look, I think the challenge uh, is you can say, I'm going to put six nurses on that unit, but I cannot form a nurse out of sand, yeah. all right? And they literally are not nurses to fill the jobs. They just are not. There's been massive retirements um, and resignations from the nursing profession since 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and they are not bringing them out of school fast enough to fill these positions, especially when you talk about the specialized units like emergency room, operating room, um, you know, the neuro units. Um, so it's just a real problem. Staffing is a real problem. Where I'm seeing, where we're seeing more unionization and also active activism is um, doctors. Mm -hmm. Doctors, yes. Um, several hospitals have doctors, which are unionized, doctors who are employed. And many hospitals have residents, the, the, the doctors in training, who have a union. And those unions are becoming more active and are organizing um, more hospitals. Because, again, the residents... Um, in, from their perception, the residents really suffered during COVID because whether you know it or not, in many, many occasions, if you go to a teaching hospital, the person who's going to spend most of the time treating you is going to be a resident. The attending sort of swoops in a couple of times a day to oversee what's going on, but mm -hmm. the day to day work on a unit is being handled by the residents. And they felt that they really uh, bore the brunt of a lot of what went on during COVID. And so a lot of them are now unionizing. So that's interesting because that, that leads you to, to the, um, to the statistics around the generational activism. And if it's residents, it's the younger, maybe the, the late millennials or the, the end of the millennial generation or beginning in the Gen Z generation. Um, and that this is becoming more popular. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we've yeah, seen that sure. trend uh, multiple episodes. We had one a couple of weeks ago, and uh, someone was saying, you know, the physicians today, just like everybody else joining the workforce, you know, the younger workforce, value different things. You know, she, I believe she said, you know, the doctors of 20, 30 years ago, they put in 80 hours a week. They were on call all the time, and it's just what they did with their job. Said the new physicians are just like everybody else. They want work-life balance. They're not working over 40 hours a week, and we're seeing that trend. I think you know the pandemic amplified that a little bit. I love how you, uh, you, know, you call it activism as well, because I think that's a wonderful way to describe it. Um, Barbara, what are some of the most common things, I would say, that people are reaching out for? And what can HR professionals do to, uh, I guess, as far as best practices go, to defend themselves about that and be, be proactive? Well, it's not new that um, disabilities and the combination of disabilities is a huge challenge. Um, and it's become, I think, a bigger challenge with the onset of COVID. So whether it's because you have an aging workforce or simply a workforce that is more... Um, 
unafraid of coming forward and saying, look, I have a disability. I have a back problem. Um, people are not afraid to come forward today with mental health issues. I have anxiety. I have PTSD. I need to be accommodated. Um, that's always been an issue. And now more so with COVID. I think the other thing that we see happening is more and more states and localities are stepping in and passing different kinds of leave laws. So in New York, just as an example, we have a state paid family leave, which layers on top of the Family Medical Leave Act. We have a city, um, New York City, paid sick leave law. So if you're an employer in New York City, you've got to comply with the PFL, you've got to comply with the city law, and obviously you've got to comply with the FMLA. So that's it's a lot to mm-hmm. sort of lay keep track of Um, That's a big challenge for HR. Um, We also have now a lot of states and localities and the federal government passing specific pregnancy accommodation laws. And obviously the healthcare workforce is overwhelmingly female, always has been and still will be, um, and maybe more so. So women tend to get pregnant and (laughs) yeah, be aware of your obligations. And I think the biggest challenge for HR is not that they're not aware of the obligations, but in telling their frontline managers mm-hmm. what those obligations are, making sure the managers are at least aware, as I put it, um, aware of when they need to pick up the phone. If you do a training for an hour for your managers, you have either your in-house counsel or someone from outside coming into training and at least give them the knowledge they know they need to know when they could be getting in trouble. And again, when they need to pick up the phone, because when managers make a problem or create a problem is where they don't know what they don't know. And they will then make a mistake that HR or legal can't necessarily recover from. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. Do you have any communication uh, best practices for all of our HR listeners on how to build those relationships, ensure they're they're sharing the right messaging to help reduce uh, any errors or inappropriate decisions, even ones that aren't done on purpose, right? There's no intent to make the wrong decision or to do something wrong at the, the say, the frontline managers uh, on how HR folks can can uh, put practices in place to help with that aside from training? Well, aside from training is kind of a, you you can't do it aside from training, but recognize Mm -hmm. this. If you have policies that you put out that are perfectly great, wonderful, well-drafted, and your managers don't understand those policies, the policies Mm -hmm. are actually going to hurt you. Because in a deposition, a lawyer is going to show a manager that policy and say, hey, Robert, do you see your policy on XYZ? Did you consult that policy before you terminated my client? Well, no, I didn't know. I didn't have it. I didn't see it. I'm not aware. Actually, then you look very bad. You took the time to write policies, but you didn't explain the policies to Robert. So how do you do the training? First of all, make it easy for them. Um, Make it at a time when they can attend, whether it's before work, after work, in the middle of the day, at lunch. Number two, give them food. This is going to sound absurd, Mm -hmm. but if you serve food, they will come. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm making a joke, okay? And the third thing is when I do training, what I leave the managers with is remember this word, maybe. What is that word? 
if I come to you and say, I'm pregnant, I just found out, I, can I be relieved of my lifting requirement for patients? Answer, maybe. Don't say yes. Don't say no. Say, I need to look into it. Maybe is kind of a, it's kind of the word I leave them with to think about. That's yeah. not the use. The lesson to give the managers is don't give the employee a decision. Check with HR. Don't say yes. Don't say no. Say, I'm going to look into it. Don't say yes. Don't say no. Say, I'm going to look into it. If you think about that, if you can leave them with that adage, you will be in a lot better situation because the managers will not give the good answer. Because I have, you know, you can have a manager who says, well, I, you know, you need to leave at two o'clock, you know, three times a week. Yeah, sure. We could do that. So now you have the friendly manager, the helpful manager who has now committed you to an accommodation that maybe you didn't have to do, who's committed you to something without actually asking for the medical documentation. So mm-hmm. that's the spectrum. And then you have the manager with the pregnant employee who says, absolutely not. I, I can't give you that lifting accommodation. What are you kidding me? You've got to be able to lift a patient that's a hundred pounds you better take a leave. You know, you better go on unpaid leave. So you have two sides of the spectrum, either the nasty manager or the very helpful manager. Either way, you're in trouble. <laughs> so my adage is don't say yes, don't say no, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. And, um, yeah. You're, you're, and if, yeah. If I can instill that lesson, but mm-hmm. then follow through. So the problem is what I hear from a lot of frontline managers is I called HR and they never got back to me or I didn't get a straight answer or I got no answer. And so then they're frustrated and they're acting because they don't get the information they need. So that's a challenge too. But getting the managers to understand that they should go to human resources for guidance is the first step in solving that problem. Yeah. Barbara, I think you're hitting on on a huge professional development point. Um, for HR professionals when going back to like drafting policy, maybe they're writing and they're drafting, um, but thinking through multiple layers about the policy, not just how it's written or are you hitting all the key points from local, state or federal law and that you're putting that stuff in the policy, but how it's going to be communicated, how it's going to be perceived. Are people going to understand it? What's going to happen if it's in in a courtroom being uh, tested Mm -hmm. to its validity? Uh, and all of that, that goes into um, all the different types of things that um, HR professionals learn over time. So I'm glad that you bring that up because I think that is super, super important. Um, and I would say to the HR professionals, if you if you have the legal counsel that's reviewing your policy draft before it actually gets uh, published and it comes back to you and it's got red marks all over it and it's all marked up, be thankful. Be thankful that you had a legal team that actually took the time to mark it up, and they're probably helping you think through all of those things that we just referenced. Well, Luke. I don't want to get on a tangent of policy drafting, but, but um, when you're publishing policies for employees, right? Um, and remember that you know Mike, the um, laundry worker, has to be able to understand that policy. Mm-hmm. Little known, the average um, American has a reading level of eighth grade. Did you know that? Even people that went through high school and college. Wow. Yes. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Uh, Little known fact, when I drafted policies, my my kids are 
young adults, but I sometimes showed them to my kids and said, do you understand this? Could you read this? Could you read and understand it? Draft a policy so the average high schooler can read and understand it. It doesn't have to have fancy like legal language. It doesn't have to have long words. It should be something, because remember, if God forbid you're ever in front of a jury, you're going to put that policy up on a, on a, on a um, smart board in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And then say to the jury, well, okay, Mike, the janitor, got this policy. And if the policy is so dense, the jury's going to be like, what are you kidding me? How is Mike, the janitor, going to understand that policy? Of course he didn't understand it. Of course he probably didn't even read it because he looked at it and he just said, oh, well, forget that. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that you need to make the policies you know, unintelligent, but you need to make them user-friendly, recognizing that it's not written for the CFO or the neurosurgeon. It's got to be written for that person and as, and also for your rank-and-file employees. Um, it's, it's, it's an important – it's kind of a tricky thing to do, but it's an important thing. And, again, that's the policy that you're going to put in your employee-facing handbook. That's different from the policy you should have in your HR administrative manual, which does have to be denser and which does have to be maybe more you know, attuned to the, the vagaries of the laws. Sure. Absolutely. I, I, I love Barbara, it. You, I'm gonna, go ahead, Luke. I'll, I'll say I'm going to tie this back to your military experience, Bo, because I when you're Barbara, when you're talking about policies, I immediately thought of Bo's time in the military where everything in the military is technically a policy, we could say. But the military right. is so good at it because they're like, well, we don't care how it's written. We don't care what is what's important is that the soldier understands it. And that they comprehend it is that, and that's kind of Bo. Isn't that exactly how it all works? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Have you registered for Ashra's June Fourth webinar yet? Attend Optimizing Employee Wellness: How Infirmary Health Aligned HR and Pharmacy for Better Benefits and Earn a CEU. Yeah, I, I, I think. I think it's also in line with what um, what Barbara, what you what you are saying is you have the employee facing piece that everybody can understand, and then of course you have the back end HR administrative um, piece that needs to be, have more depth. And Luke, you know the Army and military is kind of no different. It's full of regulations, right, that are very detailed and have depth. But then maybe what you're putting out to your soldiers is a more general uh, general rules around around that, that they can follow and make sure they're not violating the deeper regulations, if you will. Um, I think that's super good. So, so Barbara, so before we let you... the employee yeah. is not a best practice. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> confusing people just lends to probably more litigation in the future. Barbara, before we let you go, um, real quick, and I'm interested in, in your response, you have a blog out there that you wrote with a couple other partners at your firm referencing artificial intelligence and its impact uh, on recruiting and re- recruiting and hiring. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering since we started off talking about unions, right? And AI is a huge, huge topic uh, in the news at the federal level, state level, because it's moving today so exponentially fast. Um, are you seeing in your labor relations contracts is that catching up to also be included in the contracts when it comes to hiring and recruiting? 
And the impact have, of that? It's a great question, um, Bo, but I haven't seen it in the contracts. However, the unions are definitely on top of it. And um, in New York City, for instance, there's actually regulations pending that have been delayed and delayed and delayed because businesses are so uh, sort of concerned and afraid of uh, what this regulation is going to mean for them. But AI regulations, so they, yeah. the last saw earlier this week is the regulations were supposed to go into effect, I believe, at the end of April, and now they've been delayed to July because of business commentary. And the other thing that we're seeing is the first trickle of lawsuits, not against the employers necessarily, but also against the AI companies themselves. Mm. Um, you know, this algorithm was designed to weed out people of color or weed out people who are older or weed out people with disabilities. Um, and so like what the city is doing is putting out regulations saying you have to, uh, how these things have to be validated, um, how this testing has to be sort of testing the testing. Um, and the, the, the real fight is what is the standard going to be to, to validate or test, um, mm -hmm. you know, the intelligence. And the other challenge is right now, I think it's very difficult slash impossible for the average applicant to know if yeah. they submitted a resume, how do you know your resume wasn't spit out because of some algorithm, some artificial intelligence? You don't actually. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're going to possibly see is disclosure that you're going to see on company websites that they're going to have to disclose. We use the, uh, you know, the Microsoft AI to screen resumes. If you have questions about screening, click this link. And um, I don't think we have seen that yet. And that's that's where you're going to see the, um, the lawsuits. And I think the challenge, and I don't know in a given company, frankly, whether it's someone in the IT department or working with HR who's uh, designing these um, AI yeah. uh, systems. Um, the challenge is really making sure that it that you're measuring not whether someone obviously is a person of color or whether someone is disabled but if you're screen excuse me if you're screening resumes that you do it in a way that's focused on qualification qualifications um and that's that's going to be the biggest challenge I but it's yeah. just thing that i don't think people uh, are able yet to get their head around it uh, but it's being widely used yeah i think it's being quite widely used well it's interesting yeah. because the, when i see uh the ai and machine learning tools out there uh it, it, look that's a that's a like an action-packed group of words right so what, what i what, how my brain likes to think about it is when i think machine learning i think pattern recognition right so i'm thinking okay Computers are great at recognizing patterns, just like our own human brains are. I think where it gets dangerous is the system starts to think like uh, just like what's actually happening in real life, the decisions we're making as humans. So what the computer is going to see is, well, this human likes to hire people like this, right? And that pattern recognition is going to then say, well, the path of least resistance to get the result that I want in data is to push this person forward, right? And there just has to be checks and balances in there 
to catch ourselves. Otherwise, the machine is just amplifying the bad habits as exist anyway. Where it gets super interesting, though, is it's not necessarily an all bad thing because just like how it can find the path of least resistance, it can create alerts at the same time to alert leadership as to what's actually going on and saying, hey, we're recognizing this pattern. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it's actually happening right now. Uh, it's just such an interesting time and, you know, very uh, not regulated very well at all, by the way, right now. I think we'll get there. It's just uh, what an interesting time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, even this use of AI to, to draft legal papers, which is a whole nother topic. I don't know that, um, for instance, I don't know anyone who's doing it, but I do know it's something that I'm constantly getting whether emails or uh, offers from these companies saying, if you want to help drafting your briefs, just this and we can vet your brief, we can change your brief. I wouldn't even touch that. But I wonder whether, you know, it's smaller firms where lawyers are pressed for time and, you know, they don't have a staff of associates to help them do research and such. Are they using AI? I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked. But what I've also really got to watch it because they write very well but they can be absolutely wrong like a hundred percent wrong they write it well and so it, it sounds really good but it's actually wrong yeah. like factually um yeah i was reading an article recently um just in the past couple of days where the training of the future when you talk about ai right even for coders it's not going to be like how to code or how to do something it's going to be being proficient in writing prompts and writing prompts is like, if you're in something like chat GPT, you're just telling it what to do. So it would be write a legal brief on X and you hit the go button and you end up with this long legal brief written by an AI tool. So where to me that has implications if it's not monitored properly, especially inside of organizations for, for hiring and recruiting. If all of a sudden you're inside of your applicant tracking tools, and the systems that you use in your organization. And instead of instead of using filters and you're clicking on multiple things, say, I want this, 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 and this, these are all the qualifications, you'll be shown a prompt. And all you have to do is say, find me a candidate with 10 years of experience and a master's degree in marketing. And then it spits you out whatever's in the database of those candidates. But, you don't, but and if you're not screening all of them, you may have discriminated against others um, that are in the database just because you didn't write the prompt correctly um it's it's interesting yeah interesting times certainly well barbara see where everything goes (laughs) yeah for sure um we have thoroughly enjoyed this we could probably we could talk to you forever on different topics but we know you're super busy big cases going on we always give our guests an opportunity to to plug whatever you want to plug give some best advice, tell somebody happy birthday, whatever you want to do. So the floor is yours. Well, um, I don't know of anyone having a birthday today, but I will say my best advice is don't be penny wise and pound foolish, right? If you have a challenging situation and you need to pick up the phone and call your lawyer, do it. Because the, the couple of hundred or even a couple of thousand dollars that you spend getting that advice generally speaking, will save you money down the road. Yeah. Um, and that's the biggest challenge. I think clients are always under budget pressure. 
but um, the the biggest issue for us is when we are brought into a situation after mistakes have already been made, and then we're trying to fix those mistakes, which sometimes is impossible. So calling early is is a good thing, generally. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. Super good. Luke, you want to take us home? Yeah, I'll take us home. So HR listeners of my two biggest takeaways today that we can implement right now is number one, say maybe. That is awesome advice, Barbara. Put that, make that your default response. Say maybe. And then number two, go out there and develop a relationship with an attorney. All right. If you don't have one already, be proactive about this because something is going to come up in your career, in your profession, and just even being able to reach out and ask that simple question after you give the uh, employee the maybe uh, is going to go a very long way. So I think for, for me, if I got my boots on the ground, that's a, those are my two major takeaways. But Barbara, we greatly appreciate your time. Um, we hope you'll come back and join us sometime. And uh, Astro Nation, that's a wrap. Still listening? Save your seat for the upcoming June 4th ASHRA webinar with RX Benefits and Infirmary Health today. Questions for the speakers? Send them ahead of time to ashra.edu at ashra.org.